Sława everyone, Sława Bogom and welcome to the next episode of Searching for the Slavic Soul. Uh, the last three episodes were a bit difficult <laughs> uh, with plenty of scientific definitions and explanations and uh, fancy scientific words and stuff. So I thought we will take it um, a bit easier today and we will talk about things that pretty much require only common sense and some basic historical knowledge. Uh, there will be a little bit of science, but not too much. And the science will be awesome as always. And I'm pretty sure you won't mind. So um, I forgot. Today, as the title of the episode indicates, we will be talking about fake lore, uh, which is the made up stuff that more and more often passes for Slavic lore, <laughs> uh, particularly on social media. So if um, so, if any of this sounds interesting, keep listening. So, fake lore. Fake lore is actually a big problem nowadays, and it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem, well, pretty much every day. Because what's happening is that there is one person who makes some stuff up and then this person puts it up on, I don't know, Instagram or some other Facebook and adds a like, pretty picture to all this made up stuff with some shamanic sounding music and others, other people like it they don't fact check it because I, I realized quite recently people don't do fact checking, you know, <laughs> that is so weird. It seems like it should be the obvious things to do, particularly if you learn something from uncertain sources, but look at that, people don't do it. So they don't fact check this made up BS. They share it forward, perhaps even add some other stuff. And in a matter of a few clicks, the whole thing snowballs, like, you know, gets bigger and bigger. I am not too active on social media nowadays because, well, I've been banned from a few places and I don't have that much time anyway. But when, I'm, when I am on social media, I do my best to correct the fake lore BS and explain things, um, I might every now and then come across mean, but you know, it's hard not to, <laughs> especially if you like me, mean by nature. But still, you know, it just sometimes feels like, you know, addressing the whole fake lore thing it just feels like the whack a mole game you know the the one that you hit one thing with a hammer and then that causes another thing to pop out or two or three thingies pop out so you know uh, dealing with fake lore it's uh if you do it one comment at a time it kind of feels pointless at some point uh, so this is really why I'm recording this episode today. I am just, I've decided just to deal with all of it in one go and that's it. Uh, any fake lore post in the posts in the future, I'll be just, you know, copy link, paste link, post and done. And I hope you 
do it too. Uh, in the notes of the episode, I will post the link to the blog post uh, about fake lore, which is going to be published on blog on Vitya's blog as well. So if you prefer to link up a written and not spoken version of the anti-fake lore campaign, you can just do it easy, easier. And now, kind of uh, being me, <laughs> I did a bit of uh, an analysis of the fake lore I've encountered, and I kind of distinguish three different types of fake lore. Uh, the types are, you know, the first one is the misunderstandings, and then the second one is the myths, and then there is the total, complete, 100% made-up BS. Uh, the misunderstandings are not so bad. It's basically a result of people using the wrong words to describe things. And through these, they end up confusing other people. Uh, the most commonly used wrong words of fake lore are ancient, <laughs> Slavic, and tradition or traditional. And the the part of fake lore that such words are causing the most confusions are Slavic symbols. And if you believe the creators of the you know, symbolic content, so again, if you don't do your fact checking, uh, all of these Slavic symbols are you know, said to be ancient and you know, 100% Slavic and so very traditional. And the truth is that pretty much not a single of these symbols is all of the three things at the same time. So among the multum, the plethora of nowadays used Slavic symbols, not a single one is ancient and traditional and 100% Slavic at the same time, which obviously doesn't stop the creators or rather fabricators of fake lore from claiming that they are, you know, ancient, traditional and Slavic. And this is why I, I cannot stress it enough. You should always, always do your fact checking before you believe pretty much anything you see written, said or, I don't know, drawn about Slavic tradition or anything else for that matter. Anyway, symbols, Slavic symbols. There's, there's many of them. The, the most popular by far are the svastika, the kolovrut or kolovrat, and the symbol of Veles and the <laughs> so-called hands of God. So let's start with the, the hands of God, um, or another name of this symbol is the Slavic cross. Uh, this symbol was found on a so-called ashtray from Biała, uh, which is a vessel that was, that was used to store the ashes of a cremated person. Uh, this ashtray was found in a legitimate archaeological site. It was properly, you know, taken out of the ground and examined, examined and dated. So it is certain that it was made and decorated somewhere in the first or third century of the common era. So it's definitely ancient. Problem is that it's not Slavic. 
it was not made by Slavic people. It was done by people living, it was made by people living in so-called Przeworsk culture, which was most likely Germanic. So, you know, it might look like a cross, but is definitely not Slavic. Therefore, it cannot be called a Slavic cross. It also cannot be called or should not be called because there is no evidence backing it up. It should not be called the hands of God because although the symbol in question is likely a representation of hands, it's impossible to say which hands they are, like whose hands they are. Because if you look at the reconstruction of the vessel, you'll see that every single character drawn on this vessel have these like rake looking hands. So it might be as well that it's a symbol of cross hands of, I don't know, hunters or ancestors or spiritual leaders or a spouse or children or pretty much anyone else. And actually for a very long time, for over half a century really, no one thought these hands were like belong to a god. It was only in the 90s and the ashtray was found in 1936 when a guy called Lech Emphazy Stefanski, uh, completely out of the blue, he decided that those, you know, those hands simply have got to be the hands of God. So Lech Emphazy Stefanski, as you most probably have already guessed, uh, he was Polish and he was actually a pretty multi-talented guy. Uh, He was an actor, a director, a translator, um, he was a prolific writer, and most of the stuff he wrote about so prolifically, it was stuff about parapsychology and other like paranormal stuff. And being Slavic himself, he decided he will single-handedly reconstruct the whole Slavic religion, because why not? Uh, Did I mention he did not have any background in history or anthropology or cultural or religious studies? I didn't, did I? Because he didn't. Anyway, uh, Mr. Stefanski, he decided that he's got what it takes to reconstruct the pre-Christian Slavic religion, like on his own. And he figured out, I'm actually not sure basing on what, but still he concluded that the Slavic religion (laughs) simply has got to be monotheistic. He couldn't quite make it monotheistic because, you know, there are all the Slavic gods in the medieval chronicles. So he took it as far as he could, which means he, uh, he made his reconstructed Slavic religion a religion that's like henotheistic. Uh, and henotheistic it means that a religion has like many deities but only one supreme god. And once he concluded this, he obviously had to back it up with something. So he figured that the symbol from the ashtray with, you know, from the ashtray from Biawa is just a perfect 
for this purpose. So, so he said, like, without backing his claims with absolutely any solid evidence, he said, he said that the hands are the symbol of the supreme god, like, holding the word. And this is how the symbol got to be called the hands of God. And pretty much this is how any fake lore is <laughs> created. And, you know, none of it is anything kind of hard to find. None of it is a hard to find knowledge. It's all out there, really, really easy to find. But in order to find it, you have to question what you are being told. And people don't do it. And this is why the fake lore spreads. So, hands of God, the ancient symbol, but not Slavic, and its meaning is unknown, but nobody fact checks anything. So, now, as the fake lore has it, it's an ancient Slavic symbol of a supreme God holding the word. By the way, a part of making all the stuff, all, you know, the hand of God stuff up, the Lechem Fazy Stefanski, he also decided <laughs> he will start a whole entire religion. And this is how Rodzimy Kościół Polski, one of the many weird Polish Rodnoveri groups, was founded. Um, it's a little bit different story with Svastika. Obviously, um, you know, majority of people nowadays think of Svastika as a Nazi symbol, but actually it's kind of not. Um, I mean, Hitler did use Svastika as his logo, but the, you know, the few de decades of Nazi ownership is really just a tiny drop in the really, really long history of Svastika. Because the Svastika is actually one of the oldest known symbols designed by humankind, uh, the first swastika was carved into a bone of a mammoth, <laughs> no, the, the hairy elephant that has been extinct for the last, I don't know, 10,000 years or so, and, you know, that walked the earth in the Stone Age. So the first swastika known to modern archaeologists, um, it was carved into a mammoth bone like 12,000 years ago. And the first written mentions about Slavs are from around uh, one and a half thousand years ago. Uh, we don't actually know when Slavs as a cultural and linguistic group developed, but you know, if you kind of put together all the things that we know about, for example, Slavic language, uh, you know, it's kind of pretty sure that it couldn't have been earlier than the third or the second century before the common era. So for those preferring the old-fashioned Christian references, the, the third or the second century before the birth of Christ. And that was like 9,700 years after the first spastica we know about was carved. And you know, a lot of things can happen in 9,700 years. <laughs> you know, people wander, they migrate, they multiply, they separate, and you know, 
all the do all the things that people do they develop cultures so in you know at least like 12,000 years of history of the you know of swastika the swastika is a symbol of sun and you know good fortune it spread through pretty much the whole Europe and Asia and you know it I think it's 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 known in some parts of Africa and even in North America. So to put it bluntly, swastika is a lot of things, but 100% Slavic symbol, it is so not, uh, and it never has been. By the way, it's also not ancient, it's prehistoric, <laughs> because words matter. And it's extremely important to use language in a precise way. Because if you don't use your language precisely, you are no better than those fake lore spreaders who offer you some BS in exchange for likes or, I don't know, advertisement money. Anyway, Hands of God is ancient, but not Slavic. Swastika is not ancient, but prehistoric. And on top of it, Swastika is just so universal that it actually is easier to say which cultural culture didn't use this symbol than which did. But there is a symbol advertised as obviously ancient and Slavic that is actually neither. And this symbol is the symbol of Veles. And I don't know who designed this symbol. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone knows but I am like 100% sure it was designed in the 21st century. The first time I personally encountered this symbol was around 2010. I'm pretty sure it came from Russia. I think it could have been from the circles of the English sect. I have heard an opinion that it's inspired by a design on a medieval pendant uh, found in Czech Republic, but I honestly cannot verify how accurate this is. I mean, you know, to me there is some similarities there, but doesn't seem to be enough to be like, you know, certain. Uh, but then again, I'm not a graphic designer, so I don't know how it works. Uh, anyway, the, the symbol of Veles is not ancient, but modern, it's modern. And it's not Slavic, but, well, Russian, I suppose. And I hope you understand that being from Russia does not equal being Slavic, because Russia is a very big country. As to other symbols, you know, the, the symbols that are nowadays used as Slavic, <laughs> ancient and traditional symbols, uh, pretty much they all have been designed in modern times with more or less inspiration from, I don't know, Pisanki. So the eggs that are decorated around the spring equinox time or from Slavic embroidery. And you know, it's absolutely fine. Every movement, religious or of any other kind, needs a symbol. I mean, not necessarily a symbol of God because for example, as far as I know, in Islam, it's forbidden to produce any sort of representation of God, but still, you know, they do have a symbol, I think, 
uh, I think they have the yeah Islam has a symbol too so you know the symbol of modern Rodnoveri is not folklore per se but calling these symbols ancient or traditional or Slavic it's like 100% folklore and you might ask what is the problem with that and you know it's it's a good question it's legitimate question and I am actually going to you know answer it with there is a lot wrong with that because if you take a symbol that is not Slavic and not ancient and not traditional and start to call this symbol all of these things the next step is to interpret the meaning of this symbol like Mr. Stefanski did so suddenly basing on false information you create a concept of the supreme god that holds the world in his hands uh, in his hands because obviously for Stefanski it was unimaginable for the supreme god not to be male so what I am saying is that if you want to be serious and respectful about reconstructing a system of beliefs you have got to be absolutely clear about what you know and what you don't know there is an awesome book uh, a classic really uh, it's called the savage mind uh, it was written by uh, claude Le levy strauss i think i'm saying it right and i would recommend it to everyone who wants to participate in reconstruction of slavic native faith because this book shows something that many modern people don't know it shows that people in different cultures think in a different way it shows that a way of understanding the world cannot be just applied from one culture to the other in order to understand something you really really need to get into this and in order to get into this you have got to put all you know aside and approach the new topic with an open mind so the symbols that are used in modern Rodnoveri movement are absolutely fine as long as we are clear that they are what they are they are the symbols of they are the modern symbols of modern Slavic native faith they're not ancient they're not traditional and they actually not Slavic and what is also or what is also important is that if you don't like these symbols you don't have to use them you can just design your own and that is absolutely fine too as long as you don't go around telling everyone that what you've designed is ancient don't be fake don't spread fake lore be truthful and we good the next on the list are slavic runes which are not a misunderstanding because really nobody mis misunderstands them they are most more of a myth because like all other mythical creatures like you know unicorns and dragons slavic <laughs> slavic runes are very much alive in the imagination of people like 
fantasy writers or all sorts of I know, witches or fortune tellers, but nobody has ever seen Slavic croons with their own eyes. And we only, you know, quote unquote, know about them from medieval manuscripts. I mean, the medieval manuscripts don't mention Slavic runes per se, but they mention some sort of Slavic writing system. So, so for example, in the Chronicle of Tietmar of Merseburg, there is a description of a Slavic temple in Rethra, uh, and it is mentioned there that there were statues of Slavic gods in this temple, and each statue had an inscription of the name of the god on it. So we know that Slavs used some sort of writing system, but we don't actually know if it was a runic alphabet or, I don't know, pictographic writing system or other types of like ideogram-based writing system. Also, if you look at Slavic languages, the word for writing, like for example, Polish pisać, it's, it's common for all Slavic languages, so it sounds similarly, if not the same. Uh, it, it means that this word developed where, when all Slavs spoke the same language, so you know, well before they got in touch with, for example, runic alphabet. But knowing that doesn't bring us any closer to describing this Slavic writing system, and most certainly is not enough to talk about Slavic runes, because runes, as fancy word as it might be, it is not the only ancient writing system. There's plenty of ways of writing things down. Runes or alphabetic writing is not the only way of writing people came up with in the whole history of humankind. But as to runes, since beginning of this year, we know that at least one group one settlement of Slavs did in fact had a rune writing person living with them. We know that from a bone, um, a fragment of a cattle rib, to be precise, um, which was found in an archaeological site Breklav Lane, which is a confirmed a Slavic settlement from the 6th century of the Common Era. And the bone uh, had six runes carved into it, and the six runes were the six letters of the last eight of the oldest known runic alphabet, Elder Futhark. I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, the bone in itself is a fascinating finding, but what the archaeologist did with it is even more awesome because they they just tested the shit out of it you know they they not only tested the bone but they tested the shit out of pretty much every single thing in the archaeological layer they they found the bone in as well as the layers underneath uh, they they carbon dated it they they put it under optical um microscope and electron microscope and then they dna tested it uh, including, you know, testing of the mitochondrial DNA, which, as far as I understand, tends to be a little bit better preserved, apart of obviously being passed on from the mother. But that's another topic. 
which I am not going to talk about right now because if I start talking about mitochondrial DNA, you'll just boot me out of existence. <laughs> not talking about Slavic stuff. Anyway, uh, what the archaeologist archaeologist did with the fragment of this bone is absolutely amazing because they actually used science to learn the facts about it. So if the bone, if the piece of bone with these runic inscriptions on it, if it was found by, let's say, Lech Emphasis Stefanski, so the guy who, come up, who came up with the hands of God stuff, he will have just looked at it and made up some BS that, you know, served his agenda. But science, if done right, it doesn't work like that. So with this bone, with the runes on it, the archaeologists, they basically patiently, systematically and scientifically ruled out or in every single theory they could come up with. They confirmed that the bone is cattle and not some sort of exotic animal. They confirmed that it is as old as the bones, the other bones found in the same layer and younger than the bones that were found underneath. So basically they confirmed that it was made by the inhabitants of the Slavic settlement it was found in. They discovered hesitation marks, so they confirmed that the person who carved these runes did not have much experience in writing. So it was a student. Hence, as I said before, we know, basing on the bone, uh, we know for sure that among pre-Christian early medieval Slavs, there was at least one person who was learning how to write and at least one person who already knew it. Because, you know, you cannot learn runes without, <laughs> without a teacher. So what we, however, don't know is who these people were. So, you know, we know they lived in the Slavic settlement, but it doesn't make them Slavic. Like, I live in UK, but I am not British, you know? And, and this is how science works. It confirms what it can, rules out what it can, and that's it. But the fake lore fabricators and spreaders don't work like that. They just make up stuff because they feel like it and they sell it as ancient or Slavic or whatever to validate their delusions. So despite zero solid evidence of Slavic runes ever existing, you have got a shitload of books, articles or, I don't know, YouTube videos teaching you about the, you know, quote-unquote ancient lore of Slavic runes. And, you know, it's not a big problem if someone just wants to make a video about their delusions and publish it for free. But some of these fabricators, they actually sell this stuff. And people who don't fact check anything, they buy it. So the conclusion for Slavic runes is it's all made up, like 100%, it's all 100% modern made fake lore. So if you want to spend your money on it, that's obviously your choice, but it's like putting money down the drain to buy unicorns or, you know, some other mythical 
creatures. So that was the mythical fake lore, and now I want to talk a little bit about like the 100% BS, ridiculous, stupid, totally fake, fake lore, not supported but by even a shadow of any sort of scientific evidence. And this 100% BS fake lore is pretty much anything you might read or hear or watch about the family tree of Slavic gods, as well as any sort of stories of wars or conflict between Slavic gods. And there's just so much of it out there. It's crazy. Uh, There's so many people who fall for that, like you know, the battle between Perun and Veles, for example. So many believe this shit, I just cannot wrap my head around it. Uh, Because, you know, anyone who is bothered to do any sort of fact-checking, like proper fact-checking, not a, you know, (laughs) five seconds Google search on fake lore website, Anyone who can be bothered to go to the sources of what we know uh, about Slavic religion or mythology will very quickly find out that we don't know enough about Slavic gods to actually be able to construct any sort of family tree, any sort of family history or, you know, history of interactions between the gods and with majority of the gods we you know, don't even know what were the, you know, divine powers or responsibilities. With some of the gods, we don't even know their names. Like, you know, for example, Procopius of Caesarea, he wrote about a Slavic god who was the creator of the lightning bolts, but he did not give the name of the god, of this god, There are gods we know the name of, like Shiva, Jiva, for example, but we don't know what was these goddesses, you know, we don't know what these goddesses did or how she was worshipped. Radegast, the the Rodnoveri Discord server, is actually very active in editing Wikipedia and making sure that the Rodnoveri-related articles are free of fake lore. The person who's got the biggest contribution to keeping Wikipedia updated and free of fake lore is the amazing Suavo book, who I often tease, but it's out of love, really, so it doesn't count. So let's just let's just take a moment to appreciate the work of Suavo book and to thank him for his effort. Thank you, Suavo book. I love you so so very much. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, for legit info on Slavic gods, you will be okay to just check Wikipedia, at least for now, while Suavo book is watching. Uh, so I won't be going into it much deeper. I'm just going to send you the, you know, send you to the constantly updated and fake lore free Wikipedia page on uh, Slavic gods. So anyway, uh, we don't know much about Slavic gods, certainly certainly not enough to be able to build any sort of, you know, family tree or any family history, including any sort of wars or battles. 
uh, on the kinship relationship between Slavic gods, we only can say with a low to medium level of certainty that Svaruk, who is believed to be either a blacksmith god or a sun god or both, so Svaruk could be the father of Dajbuk because this is what's written in the primary chronicle as well as the father of Svarožec uh, because the, suffi the suffix it's or it's uh, it's a patronymic suffix in Slavic languages so it is used to describe someone as uh, a son of because of the patronymic suffix in the name of Svarožec and because of what's written in primary chronicle, it is suspected that Dutch book and Svarožec could be the names of one god, but we cannot be certain about it. It's just, you know, it's only a guess. Uh, as to fighting between the Slavic gods, there is like literally zero evidence of it. Uh, if you look at Slavic creation myths, which um, were quite well preserved in Slavic folklore, the gods pretty much always cooperate there. So, uh, for example, in one of such creation myths, the world, or actually the, the land, was created by uh, the god by the god and the devil. And it's always the god and the devil in the Slavic folklore because it's heavily Christianized, so, you know, there's no names of Slavic gods there. Uh, there's only the, like, good god and the bad, or rather not good god, who is pushed into the persona of the devil. So, uh, anyway, in, in one of the Slavic creation myths we, we know from Slavic folklore, the story goes that uh, at the beginning of the world, there was only the sky and the water, the body of water. I don't think it was sea. It could just be like, you know, lake, big lake, or just water. And the, the god was sitting in a boat and the devil was swimming in the water. And the devil jumped in the boat together with the god and then they, you know, decided to create the land. Oh, Actually, the, the devil came up with this idea because the good God, I suppose, was just like too chilled out for that, didn't feel like doing it. Anyway, so in order to create the land, the devil had to like dive in the water and bring a handful of sand from the bottom of the body of the water. And when the devil came back with, the, with a handful of sand, the God threw it and this is how the land was created. But it was just, you know, the first piece of land was just a small island, uh, just enough for the God to lay down, which he actually did. I mean, he was really <laughs> chilled out God. So the, the God, you know, created this little island and then, you know, lay down on it and went to sleep. And the devil, as all good friends do, uh, and if you don't have friends who do stuff like that, you don't really have good, crazy friends, and that's just got to be so boring, I think, at least. Uh, so anyway, the devil, the good friend, you know, decided to push the sleeping god off the island into the water, 
but as he was pushing the god towards the edge of the island, the island just kept getting bigger. So what we see here is that the god and the devil, they just have fun together, you know? They hang out together, talk and chat and, you know, come up with ideas and cooperate, cooperate in, you know, making these ideas come true. Uh, also, what's worth pointing out is that before the land was created, there already was, you know, the sky and the water and the sand and presumably some trees or other material to make the boat in which the god was sitting. So really, there is much more to that than just the Judeo-Christian dualism. There's many elements that exist alongside the gods uh, that are at least as old as the gods, uh, perhaps even older. It's really not as straightforward and clear as the you know fake lore spreaders would like to believe. Also, um, we know from chronicles that Slavs made oaths uh, to Perun and Veles at the same time, like it took place when a peace treaty was you know, negotiated and then like, you know, sworn uh, between Byzantium and Rus. So there's simply no way that Perun and Veles fought between each other or were, you know, enemies, because if they were, Slavs wouldn't call upon them, you know, at the same time to witness a oath, one and the same oath. I just, you know, doesn't seem like possible. So as to the fighting, the, you know, wars and conflict and as well as family connections between Slavic gods, it's all BS. It's just like 100% made up and don't believe any of it. Uh, what you also should not believe in is something that is called the Book of Veles. Uh, because it's a certified forgery <laughs> and uh, as well you also shouldn't believe in something that is called the Slavo-Aryan Vedas because they are forgery too. Uh, the book of Veles is actually not a book but is just like a bunch of photographs taken before the Second World War. Uh, uh, they are photographs of wooden tablets which with like pseudo-slavic mambo-jambo written on it. Uh, although not a single historian or archaeologist has ever seen the original wooden tablets with the mambo-jambo on it, the pictures of the mambo-jambo was enough to confirm it as BS. And it was confirmed in a scientific way, may I say, through a diligent linguistic and historical analysis. So basically what can be read from the photographs of the you know, book of Veles, it's a sorry excuse of a Slavic language without any consistent grammar, spelling and using, and also you know, using words that did not exist in the early medieval times. So it's like 100% certified BS. Uh, the Slavo-Aryan Vedas, it's kind of a different story because you don't even have to analyze it too deeply to know it's shit. The, the people who made up the Slavo-Aryan Vedas 
claim that these Vedas were discovered in Siberia, where they were preserved from the ancient times. Why is, why is it always ancient? I mean, couldn't it just be like early medieval or something? Like, what's the deal with, <laughs> with the ancient stuff? Uh, I don't know. Never mind, the Vedas, the, the Slavo-Aryan Vedas, they obviously are not ancient because, for example, they talk about racial purity, which is a completely foreign concept, like not only to ancient times, but also to pretty much, you know, the whole medieval period and Renaissance times too. Uh, the races, the like, you know, the racial ideology racism and racial purity you know it's all like 1920 century stuff made up by crazy and sick people who wanted to make themselves more important than they were like i you know i would call it a small penis syndrome but i would offend the owners of small penises who can be pretty awesome people and really don't deserve the bad rap they're getting uh, Anyway, back to the Slavo-Aryan Vedas. So they are racist and they are also chauvinistic as fuck. They, they teach that a woman cannot survive without a man by her side, like literally. She needs to have a man, you know, next to her, otherwise she'll die, which is bonkers, obviously completely not true and you know every single woman that's like a walking evidence of that so the book of Veles and the Slavo-Aryan oh I forgot uh, also Slavo-Aryan Vedas um, they <laughs> they claim to be the like inspiration for the Norse Edas so that, that's crazy too uh, uh, obviously Book of Veles and Slavo-Aryan Vedas they, they are obviously fake and it's not really difficult to figure it or find that uh, find it out but still there, there are people who believe in it I mean of course there are people who believe that drinking bleach will make them healthy so I suppose there's all sorts of crazy out there uh, the type of crazy that's related to the book of Veles and the Slavo-Aryan Vedas are the Inglists and and there's another sect in Ukraine um, they, they called Runvira but there's plenty of others so, so they believe in this crap and they are also actively spreading it so anyway if you want to stay away from this sort of fake lore, it's actually easier to look out for concepts rather than names of the organizations because there's just so many fake lore inspired sects and individual go like, you know, out there. So what you want as far as the concepts go, what you want to avoid is anything that talks about Yav and Prav which are the names of the word of gods and the word of mortals and both are concepts from the book of Veles uh, you won't also want to stay away from anything that talks about racial purity obviously and <laughs> women needing male protection and actually also anything that has to do with Slavic yoga uh, 
because the followers of the <laughs> of the Slavo Aryan Vedas, they they also <laughs> came up with a, a system of like exercise that, as they claim, <laughs> is traditionally Slavic. <laughs> And you know, ancient, of course, <laughs> and and they call this Slavic yoga or you know Slavic gymnastics. Uh, <laughs> when I heard about the Slavic gymnastics for the first time, I very nearly pissed myself laughing <laughs> because it was being sold to me <laughs> as a traditional system of exercise that's been practiced by, you know, ancient Slavs. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember imagining these ancient slabs you know, in the middle of the harvest <laughs> having to like work bloody hard to, you know, feed themselves and survive. And, and I'm pretty sure that not a single of these ancient slabs had time or need or even a slightest inclination to do <laughs> on top of their daily responsibilities to do a, a daily yoga session. It's just completely crazy. I mean, how stupid one has to be to, to you know, come up with this stuff or to, to believe it. Um, I mean, you know, in a way, I can understand the creators of folklore, I mean, the fabricators of folklore, because it can be very frustrating not to know stuff that you want to know. Uh, you know, you see all these Norse pagans or the, I don't know, voodoo practitioners having all this rich tradition with pretty much everything explained and named and, and known. And then you look at the Slavic tradition and there's just so little there comparing with other cultures. But on the other side, you know, how I see it, what's there, what was left to us by our ancestors, it's all the stuff that was needed to survive, you know, the, the, the generations of people who passed the tradition over to us, they used it they lived it and they needed it to understand themselves, to, to understand the world, to build relationships and um, interact with the reality. Because if they didn't need it, they wouldn't have practiced it, you know? So what wasn't needed was dropped off on the way to us and what made it through the, you know, pretty much like, you know, through, through the hundreds of years of Christianization is the stuff that was important. So there is, you know, there is a beautiful Slavic word, uh, Istina. It's a very old word. It's been preserved in its original meaning in many Slavic languages. It's, it's commonly translated into English as the truth, but Istina is more than the truth. Istina is the reality. It's everything that exists and matters. It's the core of being. Uh, Istina cannot be questioned and refuted because it 
just is. So accepting the istina, accepting what is, what exists, is a part of Slavic tradition. It's just, you know, facing the reality, getting rid of the delusions and of all these what-ifs and buts, getting rid of denial and fake stuff. You know, at the end of the day, it's just you and the istina of Slavic culture. It's not a lot, but it's enough. It's, it's enough to build on, enough to grow and stay on the Slavic path. And if you add fake lore to the Slavic istina, you falsify it, you contaminate it, you introduce elements that are foreign. Uh, if there is no racism in istina, it means there's no place for racism in the Slavic culture. Don't add it, then it's fake. If there's no supreme god, uh, no wars between gods, and no, I don't know, male chauvinist BS, don't make it up. It doesn't belong there. Work with what's been passed over to you, with what's been filtered and sublimated by you know generations of Slavs. In Istina, in the essence of the Slavic tradition, you will find everything you need. Just stay true to it and you'll be fine. Um, that is all for today. I do my best in the post-production to get rid of the really mean stuff I said. <laughs> you know, it's hard not to be mean when you analyze fake lore, especially the BS type fake lore. Um, as always, if you have any questions and comments or anything to say, just get in touch. I, I will link all the contact details in the notes for this episode. Also, what I've been meaning to say for the last few episodes, but I keep forgetting, um, uh, I wanted to ask you to contact us if there is anything or any topic or question that you want to be discussed in the podcast or um, on the blog. We are always open to uh, any new ideas, especially if it involves dissecting the Slavic tradition. The early medieval one, not the ancient one. Uh, anyway, uh, that's all for today. Take care, stay true to Istina and Swaha. Yeah.